This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Happy Tuesday, happy to be with you. Our phone is working again. We defeated the deep state in our quest to have open phone America and allow you guys to call in. The phone number is 833-482-5337-8334. Valdez is the phone number. And uh, last night, we had a little uh, maintenance that we had to run on those lines, so we used a different number last night, but we are back to the original number, 833 833- for Valdez, or of course, you want to call in that legacy line because you know it by heart. Uh, in honor of Jimbo, you do that. 866-505-4626, 866-50-JIMBO. That will continue to operate here as long as I'm around because I don't want them to take it away. Anyway, um, I want to talk about a bunch of things, right? We're going to talk about the economy. We're going to talk about um, a little bit about the importance of character. Uh, also going to talk about the musical duo Hall and Oates. Well, they're in a little bit of drama. We're going to talk about that. But right now, uh, I'm still reflecting, honestly. I'm not in slow motion like I was yesterday, thank God. But I had to hit the cough button. I am, I've been very contemplative uh, because of, you know, all the reflection, all the things and, uh, that happened during, you know, the, the, when you're with your family and friends and, you know, just things you go through. Uh, you guys know that right before Thanksgiving, uh, a brother of mine passed away, and that caused, you know, a lot of reflection for me. And I started thinking about wisdom and what we do with it. Do we even use it anymore? How much of us even have it? Right? I mean, I have a little bit of wisdom because I'm, I'm 45 now, so I know a lot more than I did when I was 20, but it goes beyond knowing stuff, right? It's about, you know, being wise, right? Learning from, from past errors and gaining experience. And it, it reminds me of the time we're in now. Right, we're in a thinking nationally, thinking nationally, politically, socially, culturally. We're in an interesting time where there are people that believe that you know they've been held captive too long by the prisons of cisgenderism, a word that they invented to create a problem. Right? They feel this is wrong that we are contained in the bodies of male and female. Right? It's about time we are able to be trapped in these bodies, but at least identify as what we want to identify as. Whereas the, that, even that's changed, right? Because now it's that you don't have to be trapped in the body. You can become another body if you'd like. Well, I think it's, it's important for us to rely on wisdom, right? 
uh, it's tough out there. These are very tough times. And what, what do we learn from these tough times? And we have to ask ourselves as we go through trials, whether they're personal trials uh, or even collective trials as a country, you know, like what can we learn from this? I don't know what to say. This, um, this, we'll call it a challenge, right? This challenge that we face where there are a group of people, some maliciously and others unsuspectingly, unwittingly, right? They just feel like it's the right thing to do. I think, if, you know, there's videos all over the social media where there's like man on the street. A lot of good people put these videos out and they'll say, you know, uh, you know, they, they do a little juxtaposition. They'll say, do you know, is, it, is 12 years old too young to let a kid get a tattoo? Is nine years old too young to let a kid get a tattoo? And most people go, you know, it is a little young. It's a permanent decision. They should probably wait till they're about 18. You know, they're kids. They should just give them a chance. They go, is, is nine or 12 years old too young to let a kid f- decide what gender they are and have a sex change? or to go on hormone blockers, puberty blockers, or, um, or, or even a mastectomy. And then these same exact people, and they always interview women, uh, but those same exact women that they interviewed will all go, well, no, that's different. That's different. Uh, I think gender is something you should be able to decide at any age. <laughs> and of course, I can't help but laugh at these things. And I wish I had the audio to play for you. Maybe we'll get it for tomorrow or for later. But it's just interesting to see how how that plays out in people's minds. And I wonder, are they exercising wisdom? And what can you and me learn from this? And I think that the big takeaway for me is that we can't live our lives hanging our hat on emotion. And I'm the first one that's guilty of that. I fly off the handle all the time, or at least I used to. And I think the reason why is because emotions are very fleeting and um, they're based on your perspective. If your perspective is skewed, your emotions are going to be skewed. And like these people, right? So many people that see this, they're doing this because they think it's right. They think that it, it, they don't want to go against the, the grain. They don't want people to say, oh, my gosh, how are you going to force that kid to be trapped in the wrong body? Instead of saying, well, the other side of that coin is how are we going to you know, force a kid to go into another body when – they may regret it a little bit later. Why don't we give them a chance to grow and to develop? We know that this young mind uh, only begins to reach its peak maturity at 23. Somebody the other day asked me, how old are you? And I said, 45. They said, you know, there was probably an insult. <laughs> but they were saying, you know, I, I read something that said that, that men don't fully mature until their 40s. And I was like, that sounds true. <laughs> and, and I'm probably on the, on the low side of that. I don't think I've, I've reached full maturity yet. My point in all of this is I think we have to exercise wisdom. It's not just about the knee-jerk reaction to fight the culture war because that's exactly what they're doing. They feel like a bunch of um, straight white men have told people forever that they have to live life a certain way and that that in and of itself is oppression. So the fact that you are born a male and act like a male, you're oppressed. So they're fighting against this oppression by saying, no, you can do whatever you want. We're not going to let these rich white men, straight white men, I mean, that's typically who they pick um, to be their bad guy. And then everybody gets into this emotional knee-jerk extravaganza. But I think we need to use wisdom here. We need to use the logical approach uh, as opposed to just being disgusted by this. And, and, And it's helpful. Because when you respond to one person's crazy emotionality, 
with your own crazy emotionality, which may even be worse, then voila, you've got a recipe for an emotional roller coaster, and it's not going to go anywhere good. And I'm looking at this story, and I won't get into it too much, but you've got a, a high school principal in Florida reassigned the assistant principal and coaches after they let a trans athlete compete on a girls' volleyball team. And I think the principal, again, my emotion here tells me, good job, Mr. Principal. Stop letting these people run around, run amok with this wokeness. I mean, we're going to get into the details of it um, because I believe that girls should compete against girls and boys should compete against boys and nobody should be cheating like Leah Thomas and the rest of those that have done that. But I think we need to exercise wisdom, both on this issue and so many others. And I also wanted to uh, touch on the economy, right? We've got $33 billion in debt. That hasn't really gone anywhere. We're going to manage it. I think $2 trillion out of the current budget is just to, to pay the interest on the debt. This is tough, right? Yesterday, Biden was touting all of his uh, economic uh, prowess. And uh, we had Ben Stein on the other day, and he said, well, the economy's doing pretty good. And, of course, he meant that in the terms of, of job growth and whatnot and the CPI continuing to fall. So if that's your definition of pretty good, that's fine. Um, I would like to bring it back to a one and a quarter, 1.4, 1.5, you know, where it was before. But maybe that's pie in the sky thinking. So we're going to dig into that straight ahead. Uh, again, that phone number, if you want to give us a call, 833-482-5337, 833 833- for Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Thank you, Rich, and thank you for everything. I know you very well, and I have I listen, but I have a lot of people that listen, and they love your show, and I appreciate it very much. America at night. We know with rich the prices are still too high for too many things. That times are still too tough for too many families. But we made progress, but we have more work to do. That's President Joe Biden, and of course, good old Joe El Babos, so Biden. Uh, has hit an all-time low. Listen to this. Biden's record has fallen to a record low 27% approval amongst independents. That's an eight-point drop since last month. Wow. That's that's big. Uh, it's his lowest number ever. Contributing to the president's lackluster approval from the key voting group is handling... Uh, it is because of his handling of the economy and the conflict between Israel and Palestine, or Hamas, rather, where Biden received even lower marks from independents. And this is according to the New York Post today, and that's a, um, uh, a Gallup poll that measured that 27%. And then you have that clip there of Joe El Baboso Biden saying that inflation's going lower, but it's not low enough. Well, of course it's not low enough, Joe, because you, you can't contain your spending. And, of course, Congress is partially to blame here. But he was the one that pushed the American Rescue Plan. He was the one that was trying to build back better 
And uh, I think the, the memes that go on the internet all say the same thing. Nothing's big, nothing's back, and nothing's better. So what's the deal? Well, we're going to get into the deal right now uh, with EJ Antoni. He's with us. He is uh, an economist at the Heritage Foundation. And, you know, we've had him on before. He's always fantastic. Um, research fellow there, public finance ec- economist at the uh, Grover Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. E.J. Antoni, welcome, sir. Rich, it's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, you, you make this stuff. The economy is one of those things. I mean, I look at it, and I, for me, it's always simple. Can I afford this? Is it better now than it was before? No? Okay, thanks. But uh, we just came off of the most expensive Thanksgiving in history. Biden says, no, no, it's one of the fourth cheapest ones ever. I, I don't understand how they count their numbers. What's going on here? Oh, goodness. I mean, if you could permit me to put on my Cinecat for a moment, I would say they're just lying to you. But, uh, you know, I I assume they're trying to do some kind of smoke and mirrors here with saying, oh, you know, the the cost of certain parts of Thanksgiving compared to people's incomes has gone down. And and, I mean, I I suppose mathematically that's that's true. Sure. But as soon as you start taking a, a holistic approach here and you look at the, the real cost, you find out that, no, people are much worse off than they were last year, two years, three years, four years ago. Uh, and, and so, I mean, look, at the end of the day, you can gaslight the American people all you want, uh, but at some point, your record is your record. It, it's kind of like, Rich, how a lot of NFL commentators will early in the season, and even right now, you know, we're, uh, we're what, more than halfway through the season, and you will hear people say, this team or that team is better than its record. Maybe they had a tough schedule. Maybe they had uh, some bad calls by refs in a certain game. They had flukes with injuries, whatever the case may be. At some point, your record is your record. And that's where we're at right now with this administration. People hate its handling of the economy because it has done a terrible job handling the economy. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that's why he's getting these really low marks on these polls, uh, especially again, uh, amongst independents, that's, uh, I think, a key group that everybody seems to forget, and typically who decides the election. Um, so it doesn't look good on the political front for him right now, but there's a lot of time to go. Now, what, when it comes to inflation, <clears throat> I, I, every time I talk to somebody, uh, folks uh, in your neck of the woods, in your world of work, they, they all tell me the same thing. Look, we're going to have to keep raising interest rates until, you know, we, we, we stifle the economy enough so that we can bring down the inflation. Um, and the magic question, I think, every, each and every time is how much longer and how many more rate hikes? What do you think? Oh, goodness. You know, unfortunately, this Federal Reserve, which loves to talk about how it is data dependent, uh, has proven to be exactly the opposite. And you can't take anything they say at face value. You know, we forget, but Jerome Powell was the person who told us that a 75 basis point hike was quote unquote off the table. And then he promptly delivered four in a row. These are the same people that told us inflation was transitory. And they talk about how they they rely on indicators like inflation expectations. And meanwhile, inflation expectations have jumped for several months in a row. They're at multi-year highs, even higher than they were when inflation was you know, up to 9% last year. And what has the Fed done? They haven't raised rates. They've sat on their hands. So unfortunately, I, I just don't think there's any way at this point to predict what Powell and company 
are going to do. And in terms of what they should do, it's not that they need to keep raising rates on the American people and on American businesses. They need to allow the interest rates on treasuries, on U.S. borrowing to go up. But instead of, of reeling in the, the, the public sector, they're trying to strangle the private sector part of the economy. I mean, this is just the total recipe for disaster. I'm looking at a piece um, from, I think it's from today, um, and the headline is, Nobody Wants U.S. Treasury Bonds. And they're, they're saying that it, it, there's some stagnation there. What's your view of that? Well, un- unfortunately, people don't want U.S. Treasuries, and certainly not in, in the volume in which they're being issued. Because pe- people have come to realize that U.S. Treasury bonds aren't actually a, a safe asset. You know, they're not safe in terms of default, although the U.S. hasn't explicitly defaulted. They have implicitly done so through inflation. You know, when the dollar loses 17% of its value, it's as if you knocked 17% off the real value of those bonds. It, it, it'd be the same thing as if the Treasury turned around, Rich and said to 17% of the bondholders, you know what, you guys aren't going to get your money. We're only going to be paying 83 cents on the dollar. I mean, that's a very real form of default, and people have had enough of it. Do you see a bounce back in this uh, uh, during our time of inflation? Do you think uh, U.S. Treasury bonds come back to where they're desirable, uh, or is this going to continue to be stagnant, kind of like the rest of the economy? You know, Rich, unfortunately, they're, they're desirable, but only in limited quantities and in, in a much more limited quantity than what we're seeing right now. Around the world, you have countries who don't want to hold dollars and dollar assets anymore, so they are selling U.S. Treasury bonds. The Federal Reserve is selling U.S. Treasury bonds. And so who's left to buy them? The, the American people and you know the bond vigilantes, as they call them, are demanding higher and higher yields because they demand to be compensated for all of the risk that's now associated with these treasuries. And and let's be clear, at some point, the treasury is going to have to explicitly default. We simply don't have the money to pay all of these obligations. And increasingly, bondholders are beginning to realize that that date is going to arrive sooner rather than later. And no one wants to be stuck holding the bomb when it goes off. Folks, that's uh, E.J. and Tony. He is uh, an economist with the Heritage Foundation, and uh, we're going to continue our discussion on the economy with him. Uh, our phone number, if you want to join the conversation, is 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDES. And in addition to the low approval rating, the lowest ever amongst independents, um, even Democrats are starting to sour on the economy uh, overall, not just on on inflation. So uh, we're going to take a look at that as as things start to heat up here. The New York Times Siena poll of voters in six battleground states and 62 percent of these voters think the economy is fair or poor. And that's not good. Ninety seven percent of those people, they voted for Trump. Don't go anywhere. We're coming back with E.J. Antoni. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Any corporation that's not brought their prices back down, even as inflation has come down, even as supply chains have been rebuilt, it's time to stop the price gouging and give the American consumer a break. So Biden says, look, it's the corporations that are raising the costs, not my policies and spending that brought on this inflation. Folks, we're on with E.J. Antoni, economist with the Heritage Foundation. And E.J. Antoni, um, when Biden says that it's the corporation's fault and we, you know, they need to give Americans a break. Um, do, you, do you think there's some truth in that or is he just um, trying to divert blame? No, I, I think he's absolutely trying to divert blame. And I think everyone who listens to clips like that loses brain cells in real time. You know, the administration's <laughs> own data actually disproves that claim. Biden's Bureau of Labor Statistics shows that wholesale inflation, which is basically uh, how fast the prices are uh, for businesses are rising, you know, those those price increases have actually gone up faster than the price increases that you and I have to pay. In other words, businesses have actually had to shelter consumers from some of the inflation over the last two and a half years, largely in an effort to try to maintain market share. They're afraid of of losing customers to, to competitors. But the result of that has been that it is eating into their profit margins, which is why corporate profits, according to the Biden administration Census Bureau, uh, have been negative now for the last uh, six quarters if you if you adjust for inflation. And so if businesses are, are trying to be greedy here, I mean, my goodness, they're certainly doing it wrong. They They are worse off now than they were a year or two years ago. Well, and that would explain why, um, and again, we talked about the Gallup poll that says that he's in bad shape, 27% of of independents approve. That means a whole mess of other ones don't. But there's also this um, New York Times-Siena poll uh, for six battleground states. 62% of the voters think that the economy is either fair or poor, compared with 97% of of the voters who actually voted for Trump in the last election. So uh, the comparison here, is saying that uh, Biden's going to have a tough time gaining support, in particular amongst younger Americans who had lower incomes and were more racially diverse uh, than the groups that seem to to favor the Trump economy, uh, which were hardest hit by inflation. <clears throat> so what what I what I see unfolding here, looking at this this poll and the analysis on it, is it seems that it's it's not just inflation um, and the handling of inflation but also the effects of inflation that continue. And I look, you know, I, I try to every now and again, again, I, I'm a very simple guy. I, um, I'll just Google the price of, of a used car and I'll use the same used car and just see like, you know, if there's any difference there. And I haven't seen any change. 
uh, in the used car market. So while Biden's talking about he fixed the supply chain, uh, I, I don't know if I could say I've seen a change in that. But again, I'm not an economist. You are. So, uh, EJ and Tony, what say you on the supply chain and used cars? Well, when it comes to supply chains today, there, there are several different metrics that we can use. And all of them show that the, the supply chain problems have essentially been worked out. Now, that's not to say all of them are gone. But if you look at this thing in, in terms of net balance, some areas of the supply chain have actually improved to the point where they are better than they were pre-pandemic. So on net, we are back to pre-pandemic levels. And, and so this whole idea, Rich, that inflation was somehow caused just by uh, supply chain problems, if that was the case, then now that uh, those, those kinks have been worked out of the supply chain, prices should not just stop rising, but they should actually go down. They should go down to where they were before the pandemic because the problem that caused right. them is now gone. But that's not true. That's not what happened. And, and that, again, points back to the fact that inflation had very little to do with the supply chain. Did it cause certain items to go up temporarily? Absolutely. But it didn't cause everything to go up dramatically. That was caused by the devaluation of the dollar, which stemmed from the government spending, borrowing, and printing trillions of dollars it didn't have. Yeah. And, and, and the reason I ask about cars, I, I bought a, I was shopping for a car in the spring. And um, at that time, I remember going and I was looking for something pre-owned because it was more affordable in my price range. But I asked him, how much is the new one if I go to lease on a brand new one? And, and he laughed and he said, we don't have any new ones. And this was in April, you know, which was literally, I don't know, just a few months ago. So uh, I'm thinking, I don't know how much that, that's improved since then. But I have a friend that just uh, just last week got this 2024 Audi that he'd uh, ordered and he had to wait about a month for it. So I guess the waiting line, the list is not a year on many, many cars. But it seems like the supply chain is, is improved for bringing new cars, which uh, would one would think is going to ease the pressure on used cars. Because I think that's why a lot of people were buying used cars, because they couldn't get new ones. Um, do, do you think that that is totally improved or is it something that's going to continue? And does it have to do with the supply chain or does it have to do more with chips? Well, one of the really interesting things that we're seeing right now, Rich, when we look at the car market and, and why a lot of volumes are lower than analysts had previously forecasted, what we find is that these businesses essentially can't sell enough cars profitably uh, to, to actually bring us back to the pre-pandemic trend. And so the reason why you're seeing you know not enough cars right now, it, it's not so much that businesses don't have the supplies on hand, don't have access to the resources to produce these cars. It's that they can't do it at a cheap enough price that you and I and most people are going to be able to, to walk into a dealership and buy one of them. And so it doesn't mm. do the manufacturer any good to produce a ton of cars to then have them sit on the lot unsold because people can't afford them. So it, you know, there's plenty of demand there, but unfortunately, people just can't afford these things today. I mean, not when you're going to walk in and get a car loan for 10%. Right. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. Well, folks, we're on with uh, EJ Antonio. We're going to get to your calls straight ahead. The phone number, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. 
Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. America, welcome back. We're on with economist E.J. Anthony, Antony, excuse me, from the Heritage Foundation, and we're discussing uh, the Biden economy. A lot of people preferred the Trump economy, and uh, we have a caller from Sedona, Arizona, listening to Rich Valdez, AmericaAtNight.com, streaming. Uh, Pat, Pat, you're on with E.J. Antony and me. Go right ahead. Hey, T.J. and uh, Rich. I tell you what, one word, and it goes all the way back to Bush Sr. It's the economy, stupid. That's what people think about when they go to the the voting box a lot at the end, because some candidates could be so close. And here's my question, sir, TJ, is truthful, because I'm a Trump guy, but if if it's wrong, if I'm wrong, you know, I think his economy is really good. Was his economy really that good? Because everybody beefs up and says how good it is. Now, we know that Biden's economy, it's it's, it's no-brainer. He's having problems, you know. So that's my question, sir. Thank you, Pat. EJ? Well, I think the economy was very, very strong under Trump. And it's because that's just what the numbers tell us. Not just numbers in terms of of polling when you look at how people uh, approved of Trump's handling of the economy and when you looked at polls showing that people were much better off than they were uh, four years before. But also when you just look at things like the the Census Bureau data on on poverty rates or on median household income, uh, when you look at Bureau of Labor Statistics data on real wages, when you look at uh, home ownership affordability, which today by some measures is actually at a record low. Uh, I mean, things were substantially better off, again, just going by strictly what the numbers tell you. No politics, no ideology, no spin. This is purely a numbers game. Well, thank you for that. And I think, uh, thank you, Pat, I appreciate it. Uh, the I agree it's a numbers game. And, I, and, you know, it's not only just that question, are you better off now than you were four years ago? But I think it also comes to just putting your hand in your pocket. And like, if you have a job, a lot of people got raises in the last couple of years um, for people, you know, uh, employers trying to keep up with inflation. But if you got a, a 6% raise and at the time inflation was nine, 10, 12, whatever it was uh, percent, you, you didn't catch up. And uh, I know, I feel like I'm still in that boat. I, I, I didn't always buy groceries. I used to eat out a lot, but I started um, buying groceries and I feel like I spend a lot of money on groceries, almost as much as I spend eating out. And I think to myself, this is, um, not good. You know, what if you're not a single guy that can afford to do that? Uh, how are, how are people making their ends meet? And if you're not one of the, the, those that are fortunate to have gotten a raise or, you know, a cost of living adjustment, h- how are people making out? And I, I see the jobs report and the CPI report every month and some months they miss the mark, some months they exceed the mark. Uh, but there's always, you know, 
people looking deeper into it saying, well, you know, there might have been a strong jobs report. Like, I think there was three of them this year where they went back and said, no, 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 we lied. You know, they said, we made a mistake. We had to adjust the jobs report. What's going on with the job market, EJ and Tony? Oh, Rich, it wasn't just three reports that they had to do that. It was every single report except for July. Wow. And on top of that, on top of that, we had a very big benchmark revision, which is something they, they do annually. Uh, but that was also a big downward revision. So it turns out about a third of all the jobs we initially thought we had this year weren't actually there. Uh, I, I mean, and, and going back to your earlier question on on how are people actually uh, you know making ends meet? How are they getting by in this environment? I think this plays in to the job numbers too, because we have a record number of people right now who are having to work multiple jobs. So your full time job isn't enough for you to buy your buy your food and pay the rent, et cetera. So you have to go out and get another job on top of that. We have literally never had so many Americans working two full-time jobs as we do today. But every time you go out and you get another job, whether it's a second job or even a third job, it doesn't even have to be full-time. You get counted as an additional payroll in those monthly surveys, and that increases the jobs number. So a huge reason for why the, the jobs market looks so much better than it actually is right now is people are increasingly desperate. And and when that second or third job, Rich, isn't enough, what do people do? They're depleting savings. They're, they're putting everything on a credit card. We had a record amount of not just credit card debt, but the new uh, buy now, pay later schemes uh, at hmm. retailers that had just hit a new record with Black Friday. So, but by no means is the consumer here in good shape. So we had a big Black Friday. I saw some reports from CNBC saying it was like 9.8 billion. They didn't expect that much. It was bigger than expected uh, and bigger than last year. And I think they said it was uh, the record to date. Uh, but that includes, I guess, mortgaging the future, but using this buy now, pay later, right? Exactly. And, you know, for it's such a shame. A lot of people are falling into this financial trap here because if you can't pay for it now, what makes you think you're going to be able to pay for it in the new year when that bill starts, <laughs> you know, starts coming due? And on top of that, Rich, you know, going back to how we're depleting savings to fuel this spending, I mean, it really is scary today. I was just going through some data last week on how uh, Americans at a never-before-seen pace are dipping into their 401ks. They're doing things like hardship withdrawals because they, they can't pay their rent at the end of the month. And so you know that's just another form of people dipping into savings, depleting that money that's supposed to be there for the future in order to try to pay the bills today. Now, I guess final question to you is because as we see people dipping into their their, um, their savings, 401k, et cetera. Uh, I also see every now and again reports on, you know, the, the travel industry is booming. Cruises are at an all time high. Um, are people spending this money recklessly? Um, or is this still some of the remnants of that? You know, those, those pandemic dollars that were floating around that they're just getting rid of. Well, there's two things we want to remember. One is is because inflation has decreased the value of the dollar and has driven prices up so much. Just because you see Americans spending a record amount of prices on X, Y, and Z doesn't mean they're buying a record amount of X, Y, and Z. You know, if prices double and the amount of money people are spending on something uh -huh. doubles, they're not actually buying twice as much of it, are they? No, they're buying the exact same amount 
they were before. So that's important to keep in mind. The other really key ingredient here, Rich, is the fact that the entire consumer spending uh, uh, metric essentially is is continuing to be pushed higher by basically the top 20% of Americans who are still doing okay. But for everyone else, for all of those of us in the bottom 80%, for the vast majority of Americans, things are not okay at all. We're all having to cut back. It's very similar to how the stock market right now is being held up by what they're calling the Magnificent Seven. Literally, these seven stocks are, are buoying the entire market because everything else is flat for the year. Wow. EJ Antoni, I want to thank you for giving us this update because, um, you know, it's sobering. It's sobering and Americans need to know what's going on. Uh, let everybody know how they can follow you and keep up to speed with all the great work you're doing. Oh, best place to follow me is going to be on Twitter or X, whatever we like to call it these days. And the handle there is at Real EJ Antoni. Outstanding. Well, check them out at Real, J, at Real EJ Antoni on, on social media, as well as uh, check them out at the Heritage Foundation website, heritage.org. Uh, excellent analysis, EJ Antoni. Thank you, sir. You're a gentleman, a scholar, and a patriot. No, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You bet. All right, folks, your calls and more coming up straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America, welcome back, and we're going to go to the phones. Let's go to Washington, Pennsylvania, listening on KDKA. Let's check in with Dan. Dan, go right ahead. You're on with Rich Valdez. Welcome. 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 I'm pleased to be here. This is a full moon tonight, so uh, this is in, put this in quote, in quotation marks, defense of Biden, so you have to bear with me. This uh-huh. is a direct quotation from him. Um and he said, I take speech over fiction, very profound, and truth over fact. And that says it all. <laughs> I remember that. You get to talk about truth over facts. <laughs> I totally remember that. Oh, yeah. Uh, so what do, you, what do you make of that when you hear Biden say he, he takes his truth over facts? I I take it as his, you know, maybe he was supposed to say something else and got carried away. I uh, I would hope he had something else to say, but how can one be, you know, how can truth be more than the facts or, you know, science over fiction sound, yeah, it's pretty slick, you know, but then he, he bumbled at the end. That's what, you know, I take it for what it is. Yeah. And what, what do you make of this uh, 27% newest, um, lowest ever? Uh, approval rating from independents with respect to inflation. I think it's insightful of independents. I think uh, all these, all the polls have been quite uh, 
I, I would say they're accurate, which is which is not good for him. And you know it's unfortunate because we're losing uh, Jimmy Clark. You know, well we have he lost his wife, but I'm sure that's going to have a yeah. powerful effect on the rest of his life. But you know, he was he was a smart man. He was a gentleman, and he is still. But you know, he didn't have the same panache as like Reagan or whatever. But yeah. Dan, I got to let you go here. The music means we got to go. Thank you for the call. I appreciate it. Big shout to Washington, Pennsylvania, KDKA, and Dan listening out there. Folks, we're coming right back. Hour number two is coming up. We're going to talk about the controversy with Hall and Oates. Yep, the musicians don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. the city that never sleeps 17 miles from madison square garden new york city it's america at night with rich valdez america's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across america and now here is your host rich valdez Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And a couple of headlines here. Hunter Biden agrees to testify before the House Oversight Committee. We talked about that yesterday. I wonder what that's going to look like, right? Uh, is he going to lie under oath? You know they're going to try and catch him with uh, having knowing the answer to the question before they ask him. That should be exciting stuff. We'll be talking about that as that unfolds. Uh, and the National Archives has admitted that it now has 731 documents related to Biden's email aliases. Mm-hmm. The White House is reporting that nine Americans are still held hostage by Hamas. And Chinese officials are calling for a reinstatement of pandemic rules and lockdowns to curb the spread of a respiratory illness. They're calling it a very, very severe pneumonia. Sounds familiar? Of course, it happens every year around this time, right? Um it's always going to happen every year around this time, in, from, in my opinion. <clears throat> anyway, and there's other news out there. Uh, you know, Hall & Oates. Hall is now suing Oates. Now, if you don't remember Hall & Oates, they're the guys that sing, Oh, here she comes, and iconic duos in music history. Uh, they're not just on the outs. They're in litigation. Daryl Hall has filed a lawsuit against his former musical compadre, John Oates, claiming some form of breach of contract. And Hall now has a restraining order against Oates as of this past Friday. Um, some of the details are in the court filing, but that's sealed. But they've, uh, TMZ, I'm reading from TMZ, they've been able to put some of this together. And it appears that Hall and Oates are in arbitration over a dispute. Typically, musical groups have their own contracts. And uh, it looks like there's a violation of the contract that they had amongst themselves. So to get to the bottom of that, I want to speak with the patent professor himself, John Rizvi, adjunct professor of patent law at Nova Southeastern Law School, and he's the author of two books on patents. John Rizvi, welcome back, sir. Yeah, always a pleasure to be here. Thank you. My pleasure. So um, tell us, what's going on here? What's the backstory on, on Hall & Oates that you know everybody loves to listen to, and now they're suing each other, or at least one is suing the other? 
Yeah, so, uh, uh, and, and you're right, it's such a long-standing uh, um, relationship that they've had, it's really hard to see uh, it falling apart the way it's clearly doing. But we've, we've had a couple, uh, I guess, kind of foreshadowing of this happening. The first one, uh, the most recent, was back in 2022 when uh, Daryl Hall was was interviewed and said that Oates was his business partner and made it clear that he didn't consider him his creative partner. And it seemed at that point it, there clearly was some some bad blood between them at that point. Um, but there's no, if you know, if there's any doubt, uh, it's certainly all gone now with this lawsuit and and with the restraining order. There's, you know, it's not just for some of your listeners. This is not a restraining order, uh, kind of like a domestic violence or physical violence type. It's a legal temporary restraining order uh, asking the court not to permit John Oates to sell uh, his stake in the publishing catalog until they they actually have a trial. So it's a preliminary uh, request for the court just to maintain the status quo. So John Risby, and this is uh, pretty interesting stuff because it seems like this is all stemming over their music catalog, which I'm going to presume they share half and half. And it seems to me one of them wants to sell it and the other one is not on board. Is it because perhaps they have a deal where he has the right of first refusal uh, and he says, if you're going to sell it, sell it to me, or is there something else at play? Uh, and, you know, and that's a, that's a good guess because uh, typically under copyright law, uh, each uh, owner is permitted, is completely free to sell or license the right as they please. Uh, and then, of course, they have to account to their partner for profits, but they're not necessarily, you know, they, they don't have to get permission, so to speak, before uh, licensing or sale. Now, that's the default, uh, and it can be overcome if you have a contract to the contrary, and that's the part that none of us know because it's a confidential contract between the parties and they can overcome that presumption under the law that each partner has a right to license as they please. So perhaps there is some sort of right to first refusal or, or something in their agreement between each other that that we're not privy to. And part of what the restraining order is asking for is is concerns that that contract itself is supposed to be confidential. And uh, Daryl Hall does not want the terms of that contract revealed to a potential buyer. I see. So um, based on the, the, the pieces of information that you've been presented with through media reports, et cetera, um, what kind of inference could you make if you had to offer us some conjecture? What would that look like? Oh, so inference on how it's ultimately going to be settled. I most of no, these end up uh, more so on 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 the, the the backstory of the mechanics of it, and how you think it might be settled. Yeah. So as far as the backstory, I I think there is there 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 has to be something in the contract that, and that would be the hope. Because remember, uh, a Daryl Hall's hope is that this temporary restraining order is just asking the court to maintain the status quo until they can look into this further, sort of to, like it's an emergency request 
to prevent John Oates from selling. But that's not going to do Daryl Hall much good if eventually when the court does look at the contract, remember it's sealed for us, but of course the judge is going to be able to look at the contract and see if there's something in there that prevents the sale or provides, perhaps as you speculated, as, as Daryl Hall, the first right to purchase. And that's that's my speculation is that there is a contract between them that provides Daryl Hall some, some rights that could be harmed if John Oates is able to sell, uh, you know, the right. So that's why they're asking for this temporary restraining order with hopes that once the court gets the time to look into the contract that they will find that they that there has to be uh, either Daryl Hall has a right of first refusal, maybe the ability to match any offer and purchase rights himself. Uh, and if he decides not to, then perhaps the sale can go through, but at least he wants to have that opportunity. He said in in an interview, and I don't know exactly when, but he had actually regretted selling his interest in 2007. So Daryl Hall sold a controlling interest in his portion of the catalog uh, to Premier Wave Music in 2007, has been interviewed and, and talked about how he, he really regretted that sale. So my speculation is there may be something in the contract between them that allows him to have the right of first refusal. And that's this may be his opportunity to purchase back rights that he hoped he hadn't sold to begin with. Right. Yeah, now that's the um, uh, 2021 interview with Sky News. Now, ba- based on, on, um, on how you've seen other cases like this settled, I'd like to get your opinion on how you think it's going to unfold. But first, I want to invite the audience to join the program in case they have any questions for the patent professor, John Rizvi. He's an adjunct professor of patent law at Nova Southeastern Law School in Florida. And the phone number is 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, that's Paul Hall and Oates and uh, Harold. There, I can't get anybody's name right today, but Hall is suing Oates telling them I can't go for that on the sale of his portion of their music catalog. And there is a lawsuit and they've now um, uh, made a motion to request a restraining order that was issued that they can't sell anything until there's an actual hearing. And uh, we're discussing how this might potentially be resolved uh, as we know very little about the, the actual, um, details of the contract that's in place. But our guest, John Rizvi, is the patent professor. He's an adjunct professor of patent law at Nova Southeastern Law School in Florida. Uh, John Rizvi, what do you think is going to happen moving forward? How do they resolve the conflict? So, unfortunately, in, you know, very few of these cases actually end up getting uh, adjudicated. So most of the time it's settled and it's a confidential settlement. Uh, so that, 
I think it's ultimately what we're going to see, um, uh, which or not see. In other words, we're we're never going to know what what went down ultimately and how it was settled. Uh, but the one thing that a lot of uh, people that love the music are are concerned about is are they ever going to perform together? Certainly, things look strained to the point where that I doubt if we're ever going to see that again. Well, that's thinks uh, because you know these guys are are classic, and uh, as far as I know, these guys are on tour this year, um, but they're on tour separately, <laughs> which is uh, an interesting thing. I mean, I've seen it happen before, but not because of disputes like this. Uh, but I'm um, looking at an article. It said this this spring and summer, Daryl Hall and the Daryl's House Band were uh, on an eight-concert tour that included Montclair, New Jersey, Portchester, New York, and Atlantic City. And then John Oates played five shows in California, Nashville, and Chicago from April through May 25th. So um, at different points in the spring, they were on tour, and they did it separately. And that's just uh, an interesting um, you know, play on how it works out. So now, John, I, w- I want to get your, your take on how... I don't want to say how popular, but how common is this type of um, of dispute when it comes to copyrighted music? Well, it's uh, I mean it's it's always been common. However, one thing that's is is resulting in like an, an increase is the growth of streaming music and the increase. And the incredible licensing opportunities uh, in, to, for TV shows, movies, in fact, even video games, beyond what was ever possible in the past. So now you have a situation where uh, uh, you have a, an asset that is increasing in value tremendously, and that's part of the uh, Daryl Hall's, uh, I, you know, disappointment in his sale in 2007 because of how much more valuable those rights are today than they were in 2007. And that's, that's happening across the board uh, with, uh, with copyrights to, to licensed music. It's just uh, the opportunities for licensing are, are so much better now than they've ever been because of all the different avenues that, the musicians have, and that's that's created uh, an incredible uh, increase in the value of those rights. And of course, when you have that kind of money at stake, there's there's going to be a lot of lawsuits for for people who are you know not in agreement on how much of that increase each is entitled to. And if it if there wasn't a separate contract then the copyright law would, the default provision is, is 50-50. The problem is that it's, it's incredibly rare to not have separate uh, agreements kind of defining how those rights are shared. And now the court has to step in and interpret and enforce those agreements, which are many times much more complex than uh, the default rules of joint ownership under copyright law. Sounds like a, a lot. <laughs> That's why we have guys like you, the patent professor, <laughs> t- 
to help us make it, sense because that, that, that's a ton. It, it, it's a mess. I mean, it really is. And it's not, uh, I wish I could say that it's, you know, well, to the extent that uh, these cases are getting the attention that they are, uh, one thing that we may see a lot more of is uh, essentially uh, a, you can think of it as a prenup for bands uh-huh. as, yeah. uh, you know, you know, where they're, they're, they're looking to the future and saying, okay, we may not be together forever. Uh, let's slow down and decide in advance how things are going to be divvied up when we separate. And that's yeah, like an exit strategy. I think that's almost an exit strategy, it tra- <laughs> uh, strategy in advance, uh, which when we see cases like this, we see the importance of that, and especially with the increasing value of the intellectual property, we might see a lot more of that. The, the issue in this case, I mean, and I, I don't know exactly when uh, Daryl Hall and John Oates got together. They were, they were not, you know, they, they began really early in their careers. So before either one of them had uh, a lot of potential, perhaps I doubt if there was even much, uh, you know, legal guidance or, or, or contract at those early stages, but that's, that's changing. For you know, sure. So there's more and more and, of, of that being and, done. And like you said, there's there's way more opportunities now than there ever was. And you got to kind of cover your your rear end because we just saw the writer's strike come to an end. And that was all over A.I. in many cases. And and that's something that um, falls into your purview as well. Maybe the next time we have you on, we'll discuss that a little bit. But, uh, Professor, let everybody know how they can keep up to speed with you, your website, your social media contacts. How do they find you? Yeah, so, well, as you, you mentioned before, I'm known as the patent professor. That's how I, I brand my law firm. So that's our, our handle pretty much across all social media. So our website is thepatentprofessor.com, but you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, uh, anywhere, just as the patent professor. And, uh, and, and look for us, and hopefully if uh, I have a blog as well, uh, where I talk about these issues all the time. Outstanding. Well, John Rizvi, R-I-Z-V-I, The Patent Professor. Check him out at The Patent Professor and The Patent Professor website, patentprofessor.com. I want to thank you for joining us. I really appreciate the conversation. Godspeed to you, sir. And folks, straight ahead, we're going to continue our conversation on character with a former congressman. Don't go anywhere. They have told us that should something befall President Biden and he is not able to run, Mm -hmm. that there would be a free-for-all for who would run as president. You are in the spot that that would be a natural for you to step up, but we're hearing from 
donors that they would not naturally fall into line. Why is that? Well, first of all, I'm not going to engage in that hypothetical because Joe Biden is very much alive and running for re-election. So but you do are. know. I mean, that is a concern and, and a legitimate concern, I would say. I hear from a lot of different people a lot of different things. But let me just tell you, I'm focused on the job. I truly am. Our democracy is on the line, Bill. And I frankly, in my head, do not have time for parlor games when we have a president who is running for re-election. What do you have time for in your head, Madam Vice President, who I like to call K. Malaitis? Now, she says Biden's alive and well, and they're, um, they're, they're on the ticket, and they're ready to go. But recently, about, I don't know, a week and a half ago, uh, Harris says that she and Biden have to earn their right to re-election uh, or to re-elect. And, and the quote is, we're going to have to earn our re-elect. There's no doubt about it. And that's what she told CNN recently uh, from an interview on Air Force Two after spending an hour in South Carolina on a trip to talk about the Democratic primary there. So I want to dig into that with uh, a neighbor from there, uh, former congressman from North Carolina, Robert Pittenger. Welcome, sir. Good evening. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. I want to dig into some your thoughts on Kamala Harris and their reelection. And then I want to talk about character. And you've actually written the book on character called Character Matters, Personal Stories of 31 World Changers. So we'll talk about that and uh, how certain um, the character of some companies is a question as well. But let's start off with Vice President Harris and your thoughts on um, the Biden-Harris ticket in 2024. Well, I would say that Ms. Harris's comment that they've had to earn the right uh, was frankly an, op- was an honest statement on her part. Uh, they haven't justified, in my opinion, uh, the right to run again. Uh, as you look at the economy and the world stage, they were faced in the enormous uh, security challenges that we have uh, that frankly didn't exist uh, like they in the previous administration, like they do today. Uh, the Americans are concerned. Uh, they don't see a way out. They don't see a way out of the economy, and they're concerned about uh, uh, where we're headed and the threats that are confronting us. And you're right about that. According to a new Gallup poll that we talked about in the last hour, uh, 27% of independent voters approve of Biden's handling of inflation. That's the lowest number he's ever had uh, from independents on that particular marker for inflation. And uh, and he's and he's equally as abysmal on his handling, uh, as you mentioned, with the security challenges um, of the the wars in Ukraine and in particular in the Middle East with Hamas and uh, Israel. So do you think that the Biden Harris ticket has the wherewithal to handle navigating those difficult situations, which, in my opinion, they and their lack of policy and lack of leadership uh, have exacerbated as we potentially look at a, a third global war? Well, as you know, the elections are largely driven uh, by how comfortable people feel relative to their quality of life and yeah. the economy. And uh, there are no signs today that we're pulling out of a, of a real economic malaise. And there's not a lot of hope. I see for the Biden administration uh, for a turnaround in the economy. In fact, 
many economists now are predicting a, a further decline and recession. Uh, most organizations are, are predicting uh, a recession in, in nonprofits that I know, uh, for example. Uh, they're not anticipating revenues uh, an increase at all because they don't think the, the American people will be in a position to support them. So that's that's one indicator. And um, I think from the security stage, as you consider uh, the looming threats continuing from China and Iran and, and Russia and North Korea and these terrorist groups and, you know, how many thousands have crossed our border, uh, anything could happen. And right. when we're perceived weak in the world, as we are today, uh, those threats become even larger. Yeah, and again, just looking back at, at really echoing what you're saying, the New York Times-Siena poll of battleground states was released uh, this month. It shows that 11% of Miss Harris's would-be supporters don't back Biden, and two-thirds of them are yeah. either under 30 or minorities, and they're not backing Biden, <laughs> two-thirds of them. So if Biden's yeah. not doing well with young people and he's not doing good with minorities and Harris is doing better in, in that segment that they're looking at their polling, uh, it, it spells a, a bad problem for Biden. Now, I, I think, again, polls are, you know, there's some degree of accuracy, but for the most part, you really can't trust them. Anything could happen. Uh, we're, we're way out, you know, 11 months away or whatever. Uh, with with that being said, do you see, and, and based on your experience when you were in Congress, um, a scenario where Biden could um, start working with maybe some of the big corporations to try and uh, get prices lowered, maybe work with big pharma to get pharmaceutical prices lowered. I know that's always something people do as a go-to to say, we just dropped the price of X, Y, and Z, you know, vote for me type of thing. Do you see him pulling out those types of tricks from his sleeve? Well, pocketbook issues are, are definitely uh, the reward uh, that he would like to, to see uh, success in. Uh, you know, that's why he, uh, for example, went to me with Xi Jinping to give the appearance that there's peace in the world, you know, that all is well, that there's a, mm -hmm. a, to, to give a calming effect, when in reality, <laughs> the Chinese are unrelenting in their pursuit uh, for dominance uh, against the United States economically, uh, technologically, and militarily. And there, there are uh, clear statements by Xi Jinping of, of global dominance for Marxism. So uh, from a strategic um, security point of view, we're very threatened. And if he, he tries to placate that with these games of going to meet with people and act like all as well, and, and from a domestic point of view, he, I'm sure he'll try to pull every trick in the bag, go back into our oil reserves again. And, you know, the, price of uh, uh, energy, the cost of energy is, is a major factor that crosses most every factor of our economy. And if the fuel prices are up and, and the grocery store bills are, are higher and higher, uh, that's what people are thinking about. It's all pocketbook when it comes next October. It's how they feel in October, the way they're going to vote in November. Well said. And folks, we're on with uh, former North Carolina Congressman Robert Pittenger. 
And he's the author of the book, Character Matters, Personal Stories of 31 World Changers. We're going to discuss that and how that's playing into other things uh, socially and culturally, like Disney, for example. So um, stick around. Don't go anywhere if you want to have a uh, chat with the congressman. Feel free. Phone lines are open. 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Uh, by the way, your ratings are up. Congratulations, everybody. It's always nice to check. I like to see, even if they're friends, I like to see how are they doing. Are people listening, right? That's but right. You're, you're doing great. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. And we continue our discussion with uh, former North Carolina Congressman Robert Pittenger, author of Character Matters, Personal Stories of 31 World Changers. Uh, he served as chairman of the Congressional Task Force on Terrorism and Unconventional Warfare and as vice chair of the House Financial Services Subcommittee on Terrorism and Illicit Finance. And, uh, Congressman, I want to ask you, how does a, a nice boy from North Carolina end up in a place like Congress? <laughs> I drink some bad water. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, I think that public life and public service uh, have always been of interest to me, but issues uh, dominated my thinking from the time I was in college. I worked in the, in the North Carolina, in the, in the, in the Texas Senate. I'm from Texas. I worked in the Texas Senate and for lieutenant governor all through college and uh, worked, uh, oddly enough, I hate to say this, but I was the chairman of the, of the state youth for uh, Lloyd Benson when he beat George Bush for the U.S. Senate. Wow. Uh, conservative Democrats reigned, and Lloyd was pretty much a you know conservative as as anyone. And but uh, his son and I were, were really close friends, and he asked me to to chair that, which I did. Uh, but my thinking has always been as a conservative, and it wasn't long before I yielded to the Republican Party. But in Texas at that time, uh, conservative Democrats you know ran the state, which was true of most of the South. Now the Democratic Party has transitioned so much to the left that there's no thoughtful person uh, in public life is really wants to be identified as a Democrat in Texas, uh, if if in, except for political means of appealing to a base of progressives. But um, uh, you know, I've I've always been engaged, and involved. I've, I've served on George Bush's campaign in 2000 and. I uh, was on the finance committee there and uh, helped Elizabeth Dole and many other people. Jesse Helms, I was on Jesse's board for uh, 10 years, helped start the Jesse Helms Center. Uh, a great, great leader, great, great patriot. So that's always been there. And uh, I'm a businessman. I was a real estate investor for 26 years and uh, served in a Christian organization for uh, 10 years as an assistant to Bill Bright. 
so you know the, the experience as a background uh, created uh, for me the the interest factor to run and i've through the through that time i think that's why i wrote the book uh is rich is is observing so many uh people who have had a, a great impact in our country and in our world uh, whether it's uh, billy graham or george bush or uh, ronald reagan uh, margaret thatcher many others that we write about in the book uh, to talk about what are their character traits that enable them to be very successful very impactful people uh, we all come into this world basically the same or have no knowledge or experience, uh, but some people um, uh, rise to a, a great position in life and have a great impact. And uh, why did Ronald Reagan become Ronald Reagan? Well, you know, when I first met Margaret Thatcher, I hosted her twice in Charlotte, just many times in London. And um, when she first, when I first met her in Charlotte, it was 1993. I'd invite her. She had just completed you know, 11 terms as a, uh, years as prime minister in the UK. And I picked her up in Friends Rolls Royce. She said, you know, Robert, I've never ridden a Rolls Royce. I'm a cop and I'm riding these. I said, well, I don't need her, but let's enjoy it. But nonetheless, I said, uh, as we rode along, I said, Lady Thatcher, we all know you're the Iron Woman. You were there when the wall came down. Uh, you fought the unions. You fought the enormous uh, burden of the spending and it was really destroying your country economically. But in the midst of it, uh, there was tremendous headwinds, even from your own party, the pushback uh, from your countrymen against what you were doing, although it needed to be done. And I said, but so we don't understand, how did Margaret Thatcher become Margaret Thatcher? What What is the character traits that were built in your life? How did you become and emerge to be the person you became? She said, well, Robert is my father. First of all, my father was a Methodist Sunday school teacher. He took me to church every Wednesday and Sunday, and I learned about Jesus and Christianity. That impacted me. But he said, my father taught me three things about leadership, and it totally changed uh, and developed me as a person uh, in my leadership uh, focus. And those three things were, number one, determine the right thing to do. What's the principal thing to do in any given situation? Number two, with your whole heart, commit yourself to that objective, unwavered. And number three, with all your persuasion, with all your ability, seek to bring your friends and your colleagues to join you. Well, that's how you define it, she said. Well, clearly, um, those attributes, uh, that, that focus of leadership uh, brought her to the pinnacle of success uh, and what she achieved uh, in, in, as a leader. Well, let's move the clock forward to 2013. Uh, by this time, I had been elected to the United States Congress that year. We were up at Harvard, uh, 80, all 85 new members, Democrat and Republican, they were trying to indoctrinate us. And um, <laughs> uh, but there, there were four members of the British Parliament who were there, two from the Labor Party, uh, two from the Conservatives, and they wanted just to see our reaction and the views and issues we were discussing. Well, at the end of the week, Joe Kennedy, my classmate, uh, took us all out to Fenway Park. Great time. In the course of January, there's no game. But we got to go in the clubhouse and dugouts and around the park. And On the way out on the bus, I rode with a member of the U.K. Parliament. 
Well, before and, you uh, tell us about the story on the bus, I got to take a quick pause. We're going to come right back with uh, former Congressman Robert Pittenger telling us about his book, Character Matters, Personal Stories of 31 World Changers. Don't move a muscle. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. We continue our discussion with Robert Pittenger, former congressman, author of uh, Character Matters, Personal Stories of 31 World Changers. And uh, Congressman, in the minutes we have remaining, I want you to wrap up your story uh, on the bus there and um, remind everybody of how they can get a copy of the book. Go right ahead. Yes, sir. As we were riding along with the, on our way to Fenway Park, and we had already been talking about Margaret Thatcher and her, her leadership skills, I asked a, a member of the Labor Party uh, what she thought of Margaret Thatcher, expecting the darts to fly. And she said, God <laughs> bless her. She saved our country. She did what my, what my party didn't have the courage to do. So, you know, that was enormous to me. And it, it took my uh, focus in terms of leadership through Congress. And that's what, really why we wrote the book, whether it's Ronald Reagan and his unique skill sets, or even Mikhail Gorbachev or Netan, Netan, Benjamin Netanyahu and what he's dealing with now with the war and my conversations uh, with Reagan in 1984, why when he pulled out of Lebanon and well, how Bibi's looking at that today as he assesses uh, what needs to be done with Hamas. There's so many uh, stories that we relate to that are personal stories about all these individuals and why they uh, rose to the top uh, in success, uh, whether it's in business or athletics or, or politics. And that's really the core of what's important today uh, is review our lives. And that... I wrote the book initially for my grandkids, and many people said, well, you ought to take this to the market, because those core issues of, of character are, are what determine uh, how capable someone is truly going to be and how and the trust we can put in them. Outstanding. So, if you want to get the book to Amazon and, and order it, too. All right, folks, get the book on Amazon.com. Congressman Robert Pittenger, I want to thank you. You are a gentleman, a scholar, and a patriot. Great conversation. that never sleeps 17 miles from madison square garden new york city it's america at night with rich valdez america's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across america and now here is your host rich valdez 
Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Welcome to hour number three of the program. We like to call it Open Phone America. And that's where we uh, open up the phone lines all the whole hour uh, in um, continuing the tradition started by uh, the late Larry King and the late great Jim Bohannon after him. And here we are, you and I together, to continue that tradition tonight. The phone number, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. And yesterday, uh, Miguel Cardona, he, the uh, Secretary of Education, and uh, the technical term in my household for him is pendejo. Uh, and he was at a speech yesterday, and he left out some key parts of a famous Reagan quote, and he says, I think it was Reagan who said, we're from the government and we're here to help. <laughs> Listen to this. We're going to set up follow-up calls with every governor we met with to make sure we're available. Um, as uh, I think it was President Reagan said, we're from the government. We're here to help. Um, there's, there are resources there. There's technical assistance there. And there's a playbook that could support the work you're doing. Count on us as a partner in this. Our students are waiting. Now, listen, he may have been doing this in a, from a very good place, but it's literally the exact opposite of what Reagan was saying, right? And, and it goes to show you how perspective matters, right? It, my perspective is that the government is an instrumentality that exists for me, right? By me, of me, but not, um, I don't exist for them, right? This is my world, your world. It's we the people's world. And the government uh, was designed to be a support to us. Yeah, in that sense, the government's here to help, right? Help us pave roads, help us uh, be safe uh, from attack, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the idea that we're going to worship at the altar of government, that we're going to expect our next meal from the government, that we're going to wait on the government for food, for money to buy food, for an EBT card. And I'm not saying if you fall on tough times, you shouldn't get... Um, supplemental nutritional assistance programs or anything like that. I'm saying that it's not the government's job to be your daddy. It's not the government's job to take care of you. That is a Marxist view, right? Karl Marx believed that it was the government, it was the state that was the end all and be all of everything. And this is why he created this conflict, this division of people uh, into the bourgeoisie and the proletariat saying, you know, we, we have to rely on the state ultimately making those at the highest levels of the state, whichever government he was talking about, uh, being um, the the modern-day aristocracy, right? Modern-day royalty, where they get rich and everyone else is, is equally poor. And this egalitarian poverty that they preach in Marxism is exactly what Miguel Cardona is referencing when he says, hey, look, we're from the government, we're here to help. But it wasn't Reagan that said that in that, context, right? Reagan said that the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. So Cardona wasn't doing himself any favors by saying that, well, wasn't it Reagan that said that? It shows A, how how uh, historically illiterate he is, and, or B, how he's twisting these words to make them make sense. But it, it's, it's, I would say it's astonishing, but it's not. This is what I expect from uh, from the progressive left. But I want you to hear what, what Ronaldus Magnus, as he was dubbed by uh, the late Rush Limbaugh, what he said back in 1986. Listen to this. The nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. 
That is the full quote. That flies in the face of everything Secretary Cardona just said. Clearly, Reagan believed that he believed in the people. He believed in America. He believed in individual patriots doing what they had to do to, to make a life for themselves. And having a job is great. I've had some really good jobs. I have a really cool job now. But I've had some businesses and there's nothing more liberating. And you, there's, you learn so much in having a business and it gives you a different and unique perspective on life where you realize that, that you have to do for yourself. And that's not just business that does that for you. Being a parent will do that for you as well. Or, you know, being on your own, being independent from your parents at an early age, that'll teach you that you, you have to have a job. You've got to pay your roommates. You've got to do whatever you got to do, pay for your apartment, pay for your mortgage, whatever the case may be. But if you're reliant upon the government, you never learn these valuable lessons of individual responsibility, personal uh, liberty, per se. And it's just funny to me that Miguel Cardona would try and really, I'm going to use the word prostitute, this Reagan quote, for his own benefit, when it in fact was the antithesis of what Reagan was saying in the quote. Anyway, uh, we're going to open up the phone lines. Anybody wants to chime in on that stuff? Uh, we've got calls from all over the place tonight, N uh, North Carolina, Oregon, Idaho, Kansas. Let's go to uh, Wichita, Kansas, KQAM, and check in with Rod. Rod, what's up, man? You're on with Rich Valdez. Go right ahead. Hi, Rich. Hey, that secretary is pretty tone deaf, and <laughs> it reminds me of Reagan also saying government is not the solution to the problem, government is the problem. Mm -hmm. But it, it, I was thinking it made about as much sense what he said as the Bible says there is no God. And it does say that, but you must take it in context, Rich. The fool has said in his heart there is no God, Psalm 14, 1. Yeah. Oh, excellent point. When you take things out of context, you can make anything look like anything. It's the same way if, if you, um, you know, and I've been in my own life, I've been looking at perspective a lot. And if you focus uh, on a certain thing, you're going to find it. You know, it's kind of like when you buy a new car and you're like, well, I've never had one of these before. Now, all of a sudden you're in that car and every car on the road looks just like the one that you're in, right? You, you, I know there were so many of that model out on the road. And perspective is everything. If you're trying to cherry pick words out of a, of a quote or some text to, to make it um, benefit you and your cause, go right ahead. But those that understand the context of the original text or quote are going to call you out on it as we are now. And, and that's the same as if, you know, in, in your life, if you have dealings with people and some of them may be positive or maybe the majority are positive, but some of them are negative and you start to string together all of the negative ones saying, well, you know, on this date you said this and that was this way. And on that date you said this and that was that way. And then, and you string all of the negative ones together, excluding all of the positive ones. Then you can make the case to say, you know, from the very beginning of my dealings with you on, I don't know, 12 occasions, you were this way, this way, and this way. And um, voila, I've come to the conclusion that you're not a nice person. When in fact they could be a nice person, that's maybe being challenged. But the, it's perspective that will, will dictate that. And in this case, I think the, the congressman's perspective is somewhat flawed or skewed. and Or he was just being disingenuous and trying to, uh, again, um, contort 
that that quote to make it make sense for him. But I think you're right, Rod. People do it with the Holy Scripture. People do it with everything, including individual relationships. Sometimes that happens because people become uh, blinded by rage or, or or blinded by certain emotions that catch them off guard. And we're talking about good people making these types of mistakes. So I, I give the secretary the benefit of the doubt that he's just historically illiterate and he doesn't know uh, the context of the Reagan quote. Um, and, um, you know, hopefully he'll live to um, correct the record another day. But thank you, Rod in Wichita, Kansas. I appreciate your call. Big shout out to everybody listening on KQAM. And we continue with the rest of your calls and more straight ahead. The phone number, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. is America. This is night. This is Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. And uh, we have a, uh, a clip of audio that I want to share with you uh, for sentimental value of uh, First Lady Rosalind Carter's uh, funeral today, uh, where all living First Ladies were present and a couple of presidents, too. I believe that uh, Clinton was there. And... Um, who else? There was somebody. And George W. Bush. I think that's who I saw on television earlier. And But I picked this one out because it was, a, it was an endearing message uh, from the daughter or the granddaughter of the Carters. Listen to this. Because he isn't able to speak to you today, I'm going to share some of his words about loving and missing her. This is from a letter he wrote 75 years ago while he was serving in the Navy. My darling, every time I have ever been away from you, I have been thrilled when I returned to discover just how wonderful you are. While I am away, I try to convince myself that you really are not, could not be, as sweet and beautiful as I remember. But when I see you, I fall in love with you all over again. Does that seem strange to you? It doesn't to me. Goodbye, darling. Until tomorrow. Jimmy. And that is uh, Amy Lynn Carter. Forgive me, not granddaughter. Daughter of um, Jimmy Carter, Rosalind Carter. And it was, um, I thought it was a very endearing message. It was, uh, it was nice to watch. Um, it was a nice send-off. And it, it made me think about how, you know, if there's anything positive that you could think about Jimmy Carter, and I'm sure there's plenty that have a great uh, opinion of him, uh, but I think of you know the, you know the historical accounts, the um, the misery index because you know inflation was so high, and it feels like there's so many um, similarities between now and now and then, and um, he might have been a fantastic peanut farmer. I don't know that he was a, a great president, 
There was a lot of conflict with Iran. Americans were taken hostage. Uh, it just seems so eerily similar to, to this time that we live in. And I think the big difference there, and she was talking about the love story between uh, her, her mom and dad, and a beautiful one indeed. Um, they were married for 77 years, I believe is the number. Uh, remarkable, right? Remarkable. And I think we, we no longer have the love story that Americans once had with their country at that time, right? Uh, irrespective of, of his poor foreign policy and his one-term presidency and whatnot, um, I'm sure he was a fantastic man. And, and it makes me think it was a time when people loved this country. The patriotism was a good thing. It was encouraged. It was um, even through my, um, you know, coming of age where it was, you know, if you weren't patriotic, it was like, I don't care what you like. I don't care what music you listen to, what color you are, what country your family came from. You got to love America, right? If you don't love the 4th of July and celebrating this country, something wrong with you. And, and, and the instances like that were few and far between. We didn't have situations where we were celebrating Indigenous People's Day instead of Thanksgiving. And again, it, it doesn't matter about the commercialism of the holiday or the pagan nature of the holiday or, you know, it, it, what it really comes down to is celebrating that thankfulness and, and celebrating our country's tradition. Um, and of course, everybody has the opportunity to disagree. But it seems to be in vogue to disagree. It seems to be in vogue to hate America, to hate our founding, to, to sit there and say things like, will there ever be justice on stolen land? How could we be thankful for this land that was stolen? I mean, how long do you pay for the sins of the past? That's really my question. And why is it that we, are, we have this new love affair with hating America and we've lost our love story with the American dream? And, and uh, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of answers to that. But I, all of this came about from listening to Amy Lynn Carter and from looking at a feature in, of all places, the New York Times that has this mini feature called um, Tiny Love Stories. And this one's called We'd Lost the American Dream. And I'm going to read it to you. It's very short. It says, when we lost our apartment, my job and your nest egg in the 2008 recession you suggested we move into a van and drive south to stretch the paycheck you earned online. It was just you, me, and our dog. Then I got pregnant in Peru, and we continued on with our baby in tow to Patagonia. We'd lost the American dream. But through life's twists, we found a different one, on the road. After 14 years, 23 countries, and four continents, we ditched the van but are still chasing new horizons, redefining what it means to be better off. And, and I look at that and I think, all right, so these people lost their money, you know, during the uh, Obama years and ended up taking their life on the road. And here they are with, you know, a, a baby in tow living in, a, in an RV. And it's a beautiful story for them. But it makes me think when, when, she, when the husband says, we lost the American dream. They literally, to find happiness, had to leave the United States. Just imagine that, right? And I know many people are uh, faced with that question, especially every election year when you hear a lot of people in Hollywood, a lot of people uh, from the uh, progressive left wing of the political spectrum. They all start saying, oh, if so-and-so is elected, I'm leaving, I'm going to Canada, I'm leaving, I'm going anywhere else. And, and people do. And I think people should travel as much as they can. It's a beautiful thing. However... 
I think we need to hold on to the American dream. I think we need to hold on to the love story uh, of that we once had with our country and, and stop beating the country up so much and focus on making that country better. Don't give up on America is, uh, I think, the message that I, that I get from this, even if these people are on, on the road and trying to um, get out. Anyway, let's go to Sarah, Bedford, Indiana. WBIW, go right ahead. Hey, good to hear from you. Uh, I just want to say that I think the left has always hated traditional America, its culture, its values. And uh, honestly, they talk about cultural genocide when it's applied by European people against oppressed people, but they themselves practice a form of cultural genocide. And you see it illustrate on how they hate everything about this country. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it's really sad because I think part of me thinks, you know, there's some evil genius somewhere that's like Karl Marx, uh, that's like Howard Zinn, that's like these, these anti-American philosophers, and that's their opinion. But then they, they kind of get carte blanche when they teach people that study under them. And then that gets passed on through generations. And they have taken over entire systems like the uh, Fabian's school of Marxism that said you got to take over every institution. Forget the, the violent revolution. You've got to take over every institution in society. And that seems to be working for them. So we now have a, a generation of people that are raised to think that, you know, America's not that great. And maybe right now we're not that great, but there is so much greatness in this country. And if we always look at the glass as half empty whenever we look at our country, well, of course, we're going to have resentment toward it. We have to have, a, I believe, a perspective and use wisdom here where we look at America for the great things that it once brought about and think about how we can build on that into the future, not uh, try to correct the mistakes of the past. Uh, I'm not saying we sweep it under the rug, but I'm saying look forward to the big things. Sarah, thank you for your call. Big shout out to Bedford, Indiana. Folks, we come back to your calls and more straight ahead. 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. Don't go anywhere. A Broward County high school finds itself in the middle of a culture war after the principal, James Cecil, and other staffers were reassigned. School district officials say Cecil and other staff at Monarch High School in Coconut Creek possibly violated state law, allowing a transgender female student who is biologically born male and now transitioning to a girl to play on a girl's team. Back in 2021, the state legislature passed the Fairness in Women's Sports Act, addressing this specific matter. It reads in part, athletic teams or sports designated for females, women, or girls may not be open to students of the male sex. A statement of a student's biological sex on the student's official birth certificate is considered to have correctly stated the student's biological sex at birth. Now, the district says the principal and the staff were reassigned to non-school sites pending the investigation, adding they're committed to providing students with a safe and inclusive learning environment. 
So what do you think? Uh, you've got Governor DeSantis signing this bill that requires uh, children to play in the sports uh, corresponding with their legal documentation that shows the sex that they were born with. I think this is a fantastic idea. Uh, but do you think these teachers should have been reassigned because they did this you know, they violated this rule? Um, I'd love to know your thoughts because these officials at Monarch High School, they were reassigned over potentially breaking this law. Now, a family friend of the student um, that was involved in, um, in this says that they hadn't even come out as transgender yet. That's interesting. Now, uh, the principal, James Cecil, uh, and the assistant principal, Kenneth May, the athletic director, Dion Hester, and the volleyball coach uh, were all shuffled away from their teaching roles. Uh, the, the, the bosses at Monarch High School in uh, Pompano Beach raised uh, allegations of improper student participation in sports. So uh, um, I think that's a good idea. Um, sounds right to me. I think you got to take a, a whole um, a whole hard stand on this stuff because once we start to dabble with bending the truth, you're going to raise a generation of children who are going to think that everything is fluid. You know, what time do you show up to work? Well, I've got time blindness. So, uh, Rich, what time are you on the radio? Well, you know, I, today I identify as a morning person, so I'm going to do the morning show. It doesn't work that way, right? Real life isn't this way. There are standards. There is rigor in life, and we need to prepare our children for it. And, and to not do that, I think, is, is neglect. And to allow them to harm their bodies or permanently change their bodies before they're old enough to make those decisions. That, in my opinion, is abuse. But I'd love to get your thoughts on that and everything else that we've been talking about tonight. So let's uh, look, hit the phones. We've got calls from Montana, Idaho, Oregon, North Carolina, New York, Ohio. And I tell you, this is a great, a great uh, cross-section. Where's my Hawaii people at? Where's California at? The West Coast is uh, still asleep. I know we air a little later on some of those stations. Uh, but looking to speak with all of you. Let's see. Where do we go here? Let us go to Paul, Zanesville, Ohio, W-H-I-Z. Paul, go right ahead. Should these teachers have been reassigned? Uh, well, I think it's uh, a lot of people's fault. But anyway, you know, what's it going to take um, for a young girl to get killed by a transgender athlete, get her neck broke or something like almost happened in that volleyball game? I mean, common sense is common sense, dude. It's the way I feel about that. I mean, it's crazy, but um, I, I wanted to tell you something, uh, Rich, that um, I've talked yeah. to you about before. My 91-year-old neighbor, uh, she died um, last Friday. and I'm sorry. Hmm. She, uh, yeah, her, really um, her uh, husband was a paratrooper, and so was his brother. Francis. Now, uh, Bob, her husband's been dead for 20 years, but Francis lived to be 100 years old, and he just he just died like last year. Well, you know, I think what needs to happen, and I, you tell me how you feel about this. I think that more veterans and so forth, we don't have a whole lot left from World War II, but some of these Vietnam veterans, these Iraqi veterans and so forth, they need to go to these schools and talk to these kids about what they fought for and fought for our country. Because they're learning too much bull crap, and that's not the word I want to use, but I respect your show. But, you know, um, how do you feel about um, putting um, veterans and so forth 
you know, uh, in these classrooms and letting these kids know what had happened because they told me a lot of story. They both landed in, um, oh, I think it was Belgium, you know, to fight for our country. And I just think too many people's lost sight of that. And I like your opinion, uh, Rich. I always respect it. Oh, thank you, Paul. Uh, and thanks for sharing that. And again, my condolences to the, the loss of your neighbor. Uh, let me tell you, you know, as a kid, uh, they brainwashed me with loving America. I went to public school 197, uh, right off of Kings Highway in Brooklyn, New York. And every Friday we had an assembly and the assembly started with the Pledge of Allegiance. And I don't remember what the girls wore, but I remember boys and we had boys and girls back then. Um, I had to wear navy blue pants, a white shirt and a red tie. I couldn't go to the assembly otherwise. That's that was the rule. And we did the Pledge of Allegiance. We sung the Star Spangled Banner. We sung a few other patriotic songs every now and again. And and things that brought us together. You know, um, this land is your land. This land is my land. That type of thing. And it was a great upbringing for me, I have to tell you. And I remember there was always um, a push towards loving your country. Being a patriot was something that was encouraged. And in my career, I've had the pleasure of uh, the benefit, the honor of interviewing a couple of World War II veterans. <clears throat> and, and one of them in particular was so moving. Um, and it's on one of my old podcasts somewhere with veterans in the title of it, probably from 2018 or 2019. But it... It was with a gentleman that had served um, as a, not a fighter pilot, but he was on the plane and he ran the bombs. <clears throat> and just remarkable to see the, the caliber of man that this was. And, and I thought to myself, man, there's really just, you're so different than, than men today. And I realized that the, the hard times that they went through really produced uh, a level of character where they knew there was, it was them. They were it. That was that they were the, they were the backup and, and they knew that. And it was also just a different time where there, there was no internet. There was, a, you know, life was simpler. Traditional values were, were upheld and, uh, and it was a nice time. And again, I don't know if we ever get back to a time like that. I think to think that we get back to a town like that is probably a fantasy, uh, a utopian dream. But it doesn't mean that we can't try, right? And I'm sure there was a time in America where people were slim and there wasn't a problem with obesity in our country. I don't think we ever get time to a, a time like that either. But that doesn't mean that one can't work on their own self and that they, you know, focus on their own weight loss and, and healthful living. So I say that to say that I think we've, we've been hit with so many trends being taught to hate this country, people being encouraged to, to, to question this and question. That's fine. I think everybody should question everything, you know, form your own opinions, but ultimately, yes, I think, you know, there should be assemblies with veterans coming in and speaking about the importance of their service. There should be um, veterans coming in and speaking about their, their experience whether it's the experience they had in Afghanistan or the, the experience they had on the beaches of Normandy. And because these are remarkable tales, those that served in Vietnam, 
those that, that served in, in Iraq, Afghanistan. These guys have stories. The men and women of our armed forces um, need to be upheld as heroes. I think we need to highlight them in our community, not just give them a discount on coffee, but I think we need to really show our children, look, this is what it, what it takes to, to be this country. And lamentably, I think we're in a place today where people are like, oh, we're not what we used to be. The politicians are ruining everything. And that may be true, but we can't let the mistakes of others influence us, right? We can't. There's a saying I learned a long time ago is I, I can't get fat off of what you eat. And, and, and ultimately, I, I believe we have to live our lives that way. We have to teach our children. It doesn't matter if America ever comes back to a time where most people love America. You and me, we're going to love America. And when you have influence uh, where you can share that with somebody, they're going to love America too if they see value in it. And I think the key here is to never stop pushing forward. And I think all too often, too many of us have. We've given up on ourselves. We've gotten used to giving up on ourselves. And in so, we are giving up on our country and giving up on our country's future and future generations that have to inhabit this country. And we that we can put an end to, that we can put a stop to, and that we have control over. Paul, I want to thank you for your call. Zanesville, Ohio, W-H-I-Z. Big shout out to you. Folks, we continue with the rest of your calls and more straight ahead. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. He's brown, he's bald, and he's breaking it down. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, we continue with your calls. Let's go to Michael in Pendleton, Oregon on KUMA, West Coast in the building. Michael, what's up, my man? Hey, uh, good talking to you, Rich. Uh, I hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. And uh, hey, um, uh, it's, uh, I did. Really I, I ate a lot. I think I probably gained a few pounds. What type of pie did you have? Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, I ended up having uh, a chapel pie some whipped cream and I have is that uh, different from American uh, apple pie <laughs> well it's yeah a little bit more it has uh, kind of some uh, topping on it and you know I've always kind of liked it and um, yeah you know it was uh, I was at my brother's I'm the single one of my brother and sister and so I go there for the holidays and so yeah we had a nice meal um, and I like I said I don't want to take too long I know you got other callers but I I want to say a couple things. Uh, first, on the Carters, uh, great family, great people. They're in our prayers, uh, and um, like I said, uh, in our thoughts. Um, I wanted to say, you know, and I told Tom, the call, call screener, um, you know, we all have a big decision to make about a year from now on, on the election. And I love our country, and I'm concerned about our country uh, and what's going on um, Overseas, too, of course, in the Middle East and in Ukraine with my girlfriend over there. Um, and, you know, want, want those situations to uh, to work out. But, um, you know, I think it's something we've talked about. Ronald Reagan tonight mentioned him a number of times. And I know he felt this way. I know you've said this, Rich, and, and uh, so has uh, Jimmy Fela. 
that living in America, we are so lucky. It's almost like hitting the lottery. And, uh, you know, we need to be grateful for being Americans, for, for we're living in the best country in the world. I agree with you, and Jimmy Fallon always says that. And, you know, as far as the election, Ronald Reagan, I think, had a saying. Uh, I think I remember him saying this, that, you know, and I hope each American asks himself this before they vote. Uh, are you and your family, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And I think that's yeah. an important question. Well, I, I think you're right, Michael. <clears throat> I think all Americans need to ask themselves that question and and not add any caveat like unless Trump is the only option. Uh, and again, people are going to do what they're going to do. But I would hope that people could kind of move um, the needle a little bit and just decide, you know, I'm not going to hold Trump's bravado or his mean tweets or his hairstyle or his delivery, uh, his humor or what they may perceive to be a lack there of humor. Uh, whatever it is, just look at the record, look at the facts. And I don't mean the record that they've created, like, you know, four indictments, uh, 91 felony counts, 100 plus years in prison. Uh, that's not what I'm talking for. Uh, twice impeached. I, I think they need to look at the actual record of, you know, who was bombing who in the Middle East? Who was bombing who in Europe? What did the economy look like? What was the annual household, the median household income? What was inflation like? And really look at all those things and say, okay, you know what? The long and short of it is, I think Trump had a better record. And I'm, for that reason, I'm voting for that guy. If we could do that, I think we'd be in a way better place. But I don't know that we're going to be able to pull it off. Uh, I think Trump has an enormous uh, shot ahead of him. He's got an incredible shot. Uh, the bigger question is, will Americans be enthused to come out and vote? Uh, that's the part I don't know about just yet, but we're going to see, and we're going to, we're going to give them hell. This is going to be an exciting year. Michael, thanks for the call. God bless you. I hope you had a great holiday coming right back with the rest of your calls in the speed round. This is America at night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, folks, welcome to the Speed Round. We're going all across the country, checking in with Larry, Newport, North Carolina. Very quickly, go right ahead. Hey, Rich, uh, look, I think that Santos guy up there, New York representative, I think he's getting a raw deal talking about he's a liar. He's a liar. Pants on fire. Let's got it. We got to throw his ass out. Okay, uh, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. How can yeah. they get Obama out? I want to vote him out. Right? I'd love to vote out Barack Obama. You know, Larry, I think you're right. I, I agree. I think Santos did a lot of things and leave him there. Let the people decide. The voters can decide in that district. However, I think um, Republicans, I believe if they, if they um, are able to expel him from Congress, they can pick his replacement which would give them a little bit of incumbency protection because then they could put a new incumbent in there. They would have control over that seat and um, campaign to try to win uh, and get those same people that voted for Santos. Say, look, it's not Santos, it's somebody else. Give this guy a shot. Whereas if Santos finishes his term, runs for reelection and fails, a Democrat will likely win. And, uh, and there goes that seat. 
So I think that the reason they're doing this is so that they could have that control and put their person in there. We'll see if I'm right or wrong as it plays out. Thank you, Larry. I appreciate the call. Uh, let us go to Frank Evergreen, Montana. Go right ahead. Hi. Hi, Rich. Say hey. this, uh, don't forget tonight is a, another full moon here. It's a super beaver moon. That's when the yeah, beavers the are beaver making moon. their nests. Yeah, well, and beaver, you know, I heard beaver. about this. Uh, um, just to chime in, Frank, I heard that the beaver moon got its name because the beavers are nocturnal creatures that work very, very hard in this particular moon because it comes before the winter solstice. And that's when they're like building their dams or whatever it is that beavers do at night, preparing for hibernation and whatnot. And uh, I found that fascinating because I didn't really know about the beaver moon until tonight. And I love beavers. So uh, now I know about their moons. Anyway, thank you, Frank. Yeah. I appreciate it. Uh, let's continue here uh, to uh, Paul, Boise, Idaho. Very quickly, go right ahead. Yes, I have a, a, a point to make. I think it would be nice to have Trump in there, but they, he'd be obstructed for the next four years, basically left unable to do anything in that four years. And with DeSantis being elected, he's eligible for eight years. Eight years sounds like a lot, but it's not when you consider all the damage that the Dems have done to this country. Well, you know what, Paul? I'll tell you this. I, um, I think that if you get four years of Trump, and again, Trump was in office for four years, and not only was he obstructed, but he was persecuted and prosecuted and impeached. And he was still able to pull off a solid economy and uh, strengthen the military and do all of the great things that he did. It raised the median household income and whatnot and see record unemployment levels, uh, in particular amongst minorities in this country. So I think that um, having Trump in there for four uh, years and then following that up with eight years of DeSantis would give us 12 years of conservative Republican leadership. And that's something I could definitely live with. Paul, thank you for your call. Boise, Idaho, listening online. I really appreciate it. Jane in Saratoga, New York. Can't get to you tonight because the music is playing, but we'll definitely uh, check in with you tomorrow or when the, the next time you call in. And folks, it's been a pleasure. Um, the show flew by tonight. Uh, if you missed any portion of it, go to uh, Rich Valdez, com. And as always, take care, good night, and God bless America. I'm Rich Valdez. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.